Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. So, yes, good evening. And uh, uh, our guest tonight is the absolute legend that signed Madonna, Talking Heads, Depeche Mode, Ice-T, Lou Reed, The Smiths and countless others, some of whom apparently were quite difficult to deal with. He's the <laughs> vice president of Warner Brothers Records. He co-founded the Sire label, which he accurately describes as a smoking hit factory. And he discovered the Ramones, which surely makes him the godfather of punk. And after 60 years in the business, he's written a fantastic book about it, full of extraordinary incident and, and insight. It's called Siren Song. Please welcome Seymour Stein. So, Seymour, thank you for coming. And uh, we traditionally start by asking people about the place they, they grew up, which in your case was Brooklyn, and the music that they remember um, hearing at the time. Can you remember your earliest childhood memories of, of, of the kind of music that was playing? Well, I go way back because um, we lived in a, a small two-bedroom apartment. I shared my bedroom with my sister, who's six years older than me, uh, although she looks six years younger than me, but um, um, I heard a lot of her music, and it was, uh, you know, the mid to late 40s. Um, there was some great, great music um, that, that, that I heard, and, um, you know, um, I started to hear some country songs early on, um, you know, uh, Bonaparte's Retreat was quite early, the late 40s, by Kay Starr. She was a pop singer. Um, and, it, you know, that was one of the songs. Um, Open the Door, Richard. Do you know that song? Open yeah, yeah. the Door, Richard. <laughs> Richard, why don't you open... Which was sort of a rhythm and blues song. And... Um, I, I knew there was change in the air. In 1949, I believe, when I was about seven, um, I heard Fats Domino for the first time. And, um, oh, God. Uh, they, you know, it's um, 
the fat man that was uh, the, the song I think I first heard by him fell in love instantly and I, I got to know the man very very well you know uh, all during his life I used to I used to see him every time I went down to New Orleans when he was there. Well, I, I, I got to see him, a great, great man. Uh, Lloyd Price, Lordy Miss Claudie, another, you know, uh, early, early R&B record. Um, Shaboom by the Chords, you mentioned? That came later. Yeah. That, that, later. That, that, that's the fifth, that's 1954. Yeah, 54. St- don't speed me up here, please. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You know, I mean... Uh, I think you'll you, find. You know, yeah. let, 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 let's, let's go at 33 and a third. Yeah, yeah, now. no, fair Not enough. Not 78, 78 RPM, you yeah, know. Yeah. You sp- no, um, I heard G by the Crows. Yeah. That was uh, probably the first doo-wop song I heard. And then Shaboom by the Chords, um, Hearts of Stone by Otis Williams and the Charms. And we had to figure out how many times he said no, no, no. You know the song Hearts of Stone, any of you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then saying no, 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 your daddy knows. I thought you knew hearts made of stone. That was a very great, great song. This is the most musical podcast we've ever. Oh no, we've already. never had anybody. I'm rather worried about we haven't cleared the publishing. Oh, no, we're going to have to pay copyright on all this now. <laughs> but you, at the age of whatever it was, about sixteen, you 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 applied to Billboard. Fifteen. 15. 15. You applied to Billboard magazine. Uh, I, I went up. To, I went up to actually earlier than that. I went up to Billboard when I was thirteen, and um, I um, I wanted to go back in time to. Um, all of the music that I hadn't written down and, and written the charts on, which they broadcast every Saturday. And the but Billboard was located in the Palace Theatre building on 47th Street and Broadway. And um, it was ground zero for the music business. And I quickly realized, you know, what the hell am I going backwards for? It's all here, you know, Right here, you know, just a, a quick subway ride from Brooklyn where I grew up. And then I started really getting into what was going forward. They gave me some work to do, um, and uh, I would commute. Uh, by, the time, by the time I was 15 then, um, I would go from high school in Brooklyn, Lafayette High School, to... Um, the uh, you know to the billboard offices and um, you know work with Paul Ackerman the music editor or Tom Noonan the chart editor and uh, they even pay- I-, I couldn't believe they paid me you know I mean uh, and um, on Wednesday nights some nights I would stay and listen to them pick the the the, the spotlight winners which is what they called them the picks of the week. And um, it was very important to win a spotlight from Billboard because the charts were very slow in those days, uh, uh, sometimes a month behind. And jukeboxes were very, very important back then. And um, the jukeboxes, they couldn't wait till a record hit the chart uh, before they put it in the jukebox. So they would go by by Billboard's ratings and uh, a great review in Billboard could mean anywhere from 50 to 75,000 records sold 
by, and bought by jukebox operators. That's that's before you know yeah. anybody else bought the records. And the guy ran Billboard, Sid Nathan, who became a so your mentor, yes. really, wasn't he? And oh. he launched a record label, and I think signed King King, King Records and signed King James Wicked. Brown. And then very early on, when you sent he was sent on the road with James I, Brown. I, I uh, well, I went on the road with James. That was much later. Was late. It wasn't later. Yeah. No, that was. No, you're getting ahead of the, you know. Yeah. But, no, no. Um, I, uh, I graduated high school, and I uh, was thinking about, um, you know, perhaps going to school for journalism, and um, Billboard offered me a full-time job, so I stayed there another couple of years, and then Sid Nathan, who was my greatest mentor, uh, had many mentors, but he was the number one. The book is dedicated to him. And um, he said, look, do you want to be in the bleachers? Do you want to be an observer? Or do you want to be a player? Billboard, I love the people at Billboard, the reporters and everything, but they're not in the music business. You should come to Cincinnati full-time and work for me. And I did. And I was there for about two and a half or three years. Um, and then I just missed New York too much. I couldn't, you know, Cincinnati is a nice town, beautiful. Border town on the river, uh, you know, on the Ohio River. And great music, country music, rhythm and blues and uh, blues. I uh, came back. And um, I finally got a, a job with Lieber and Stola, the greatest songwriters, uh, Jerry Lieber and Mike Stola, and with George Goldner at Redbird Records. And uh, they were located in the Brill Building, which was just a building with nothing but uh, music people, publishers, small record labels, and uh, managers and agents, and two incredible restaurants in, in, on the ground floor. <laughs> One was Jack Dempsey's, and Jack Dempsey was the host there and uh, greeted you as you walked in the restaurant. The other was the Turf, um, which was not as fancy, but famous for the Turf Cheesecake. And um, when I started Sire, I'm skipping ahead a little, they didn't know what cheesecake was in England, and I would bring them over, and uh, it gave me entree. It gave me entree to so many people, you know. They just loved those cheesecakes. (laughs) (laughs) When did you first come to the UK? I think it was about... 65, 66, um, don't remember it exactly. <clears throat> and then soon after I started um, Sire Records, uh, I came. Um, I met this wonderful, wonderful man, uh, Len Wood, L.G. Wood, who was the chairman of EMI Records, and what a gent. And uh, King was dis- was... you know, distributed by EMI in most overseas territories. And Sid had me meet him, and he took a, a, you know, he said, he said, Sid thinks you're going to make it in the music business one day, and that's enough for me. When you do, 
you'll come to England. And when you do, I want to be the first person that that you see, because I'd like to help you. So uh, I remembered all that, and uh, on my first trip, uh, I told him I'd like to see him, and he said, look, I'm going to send a car for you and take you right to my office before you even go to your hotel and everything. And um, so he sent this young Scottish lad to pick me up, and I couldn't understand a word he said. (laughs) And, uh, you know... That Scottish lad later became, well, his name was John Reed, and uh, he became, you know, Elton's yeah, boyfriend and then his yeah. manager as well. And uh, But I couldn't, have, you know, I, he meets me, uh, and he had, he came from Glasgow, from I forget which area of Glasgow, but where the accent was so thick. So I said, uh, I, I said, uh, well, uh, you're taking me to see Mr. Wood. I said, uh, where's, the, where's the car? And he must have been, he said, a car? A car can I drive? A can I drive? I said, uh, so he got a taxi. And we went, we went. <coughs> he must have misunderstood me. And uh, I went to see, uh, you know, Len Wood. And he had all these albums there. He said, look. Capital hasn't picked up any of these. And I said, well, I'm, I'm not surprised. They didn't pick up the Beatles. They rejected the Beatles not once but twice. <coughs> he said, yes. He said, we have a lot of trouble with Capital. And so I, I, that's where I got really started with artists like Barkley James Harvest, uh, Renaissance, the Climax Blues Band, uh, Kevin Ayers. I don't know if those names are familiar to you. But then what really, you know, made Sawyer put us sort of on the map (coughs) was all their overseas companies started sending me records because, you know, they had companies everywhere. They were the biggest and the best record company there ever was. It was EMI. You can be very, as Englishmen, you can be very, very proud of that. And um, so uh, I got calls from everybody. And and then I get this one record uh, by a a Dutch artist called Jan Ackerman. And I put the record on, and I, I loved it. And I, I called uh, their, their Dutch company, uh, which I believe was called Bovima, and I said, uh, look, I'd like to put this record out. I said, I don't, we don't pay big raw, uh, advances. He said, oh, this record? You can have this record without any advance. Jan Ackerman just left the label. He said he went back to his old band. They're called Focus. I said, oh, really? So uh, I, I said, and where, where can I find the, these? He said, well, they just got a job uh, as the house band for the Dutch production of Hair. I got on a plane, you know, not knowing what I'd find. And, uh, you know, the, the, the other members of the band, especially uh, the, the flutist, or flautist, I should say, um, uh, uh, you know, Thijs van Leer, um, was uh, amazing and uh, I signed the band and that became my first million selling single and my first 
gold album, you know, and um, so uh, that really got, you know, some money in the coffers. And the the other group ran about similar time as Fleetwood Mac, isn't it? Well, no, Fleetwood Mac, uh, no, let's be fair. Um, (laughs) No, no, let's be fair about all of that. No, I, I had really nothing to do with Fleetwood Mac, but I met this really nice uh, young man, you know, a couple of years younger than me, and he was a producer at Decca, the number two company in, in the UK. And he, he produced uh, his, his big, you know, uh, band that he was producing was Don Mayle's Blues Breakers. And, you know, Don Mayle was a very rough guy and very talented, but, um, you know, if any of the musicians in the band wanted more money, he knew. I mean, there were, Eric Clapton was lining up to be in his band. He would just fire them. So in one week, he fired Peter Green and Mick Fleetwood and, um, you know, um, McVie, you know. And, and so they were all so depressed. So, and, and Mike was producing them. He said, look, you know, why don't we start your own band, you know? We'll, and we call it Peter Green's Fleetwood Mac. And um, he had Blue Horizon Records, and the, the first album he put out went right to number one. Then he signed this other band called Chicken Shack, and uh, there was a woman in it, uh, Christine Perfect, later Christine McVie, and um, they broke too. And then um, we, we be, I taught him a little, you know, but, but not really. He gives me too much, too much credit. But he calls me up about five or six months into the, the label, and he says, Seymour, would you like to be my partner? I said, oh, come on. You know, don't tease me like this. You're red hot. He said, no, Seymour, I can't stand... The, running a record company he said I just want to make records he said uh, I'll make it very easy for you you know I I borrowed some money from my father you just pay my father back and you got 50% of the company and you run it and that's how I got involved with it but I had nothing to do with the creative side of Blue Horizon Records very little I mean uh, Mike I, I, I did Fleetwood Mac wanted Oh, it was a dream for them, and I got it accomplished for them. They wanted to go to Chicago and play with Muddy Waters and and all those, you know, chess musicians. And, of course, I knew Leonard Chess, and uh, I said, you know, and he knew who who Fleetwood Mac was, and, uh, you know, I I, I still am quite friendly with Leonard's son, Marshall Chess, and uh, I, I brought them out to Chicago. The they mentions they that, thought they were in heaven. It mentions uh, quite colourfully the, the whole Andy Warhol era going on in New York and you going to Andy Warhol parties and running into various people. Have you got any memories of that? Well, I knew Andy, you know. And, and Andy liked... Uh, Give us a description of one of those parties. Oh, you don't really. <laughs> I was too stoned. I mean, I couldn't, you know, I mean, if you want to know the truth. No, there was, um, but, um, you, you know, um, he really liked the Ramones. Um, 
He really liked Talking Heads and Richard Hell. He liked a pop band that I had too, the Paley Brothers. And, um, you know, and uh, in fact, he, he gave, uh, there were two brothers, he gave Andy Paley a bunch of drawings. And unfortunately, somebody stole them from him. Could you imagine what they would have been worth? It's terrible. But um, so. Uh, a lot of your job is about finding bands and then developing uh, them and changing them in a kind of a and uh, to try and get I them really cha- I never package. changed anybody I mean but the but the I was going to say the Ramones uh, appeared when you first saw them to be already fully formed you know they'd worked out the way they looked they'd worked out I think, what their names were going to well, be well they did it all not yeah, yeah, me yeah, yeah. I, mean, I had nothing to no. how did they evolve I mean how did they, what, was, what was it like when you, when you saw them the first time well I was very impressed you know once I got over the first song they sang for me, and no, I was supposed to see them live, and I flew home from uh, the UK. I got very sick, you know. I mean, I I really, when I came here, I really, I don't want, worked my ass off. And uh, I come back and I was sick, and I couldn't go see them, so uh, I sent my wife, and she went with Danny Fields, who had already seen them, and uh, the legendary Danny Fields, and... Uh, Linda came back raving about them. So I pulled myself together and I said, look, tomorrow I want to get them into a rehearsal studio. And um, I booked it for an hour. They they must have played 18 songs in 20 minutes. So it wasn't that, it wasn't maybe 25 minutes. Yeah. And uh, so... We used the rest of the time to work out the deal, you know. And they were so anxious, and we got along so well, and I loved them all. They were each, they all, they may have looked a little the same, but every one of them was different, you know, from each other. And um, they all played a very, very major role in, 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 in the band. And, um, you know, uh, within a week, the album was done, and uh, but I'm very sad, really. They never enjoyed the great success in America that I thought they should have deserved while they were alive. They're bigger now that they're dead, which is very sad. Um, they would go to, I brought them to England um, to open for the Flaming Groovies. Uh, the, you, do you know who the Flaming oh, Groovies are? Yes. Oh, yes. So, um, and they blew the Flaming Groovies off. They didn't mean to, but I mean, they didn't blow them. They went on first. And then, uh, but they got all the publicity, um, um, you know, and um, a year later, I brought them back uh, as the headliners with with, um, the Talking Heads. And... um, I, at that time, Sawyer was distributed by Phonogram, and my main contact there was one of my dearest friends who died about a, a year ago, Nigel Grange, whose elder bro- who younger brother is probably the most powerful man in the music business today, uh, Lucian Grange. And Lucian was 13 at the time, and Nigel brought him to see the Ramones and the Talking Heads, and he said to his brother, I want to be in the music business like you. And, um, you know, and he tells everybody that story. I mean, and, um, you know, but um, I feel very, very good about it. 
So did England play an important part in the in the story of the Ramones, bringing them to England? Oh, I think it did. I mean, they were they would love coming to England. They would play big theatres all up, you know, the north, even as far up as Scotland. Well, they played a famous show at the Roundhouse, didn't they? Which, uh, Pardon me? They played a famous show at the Roundhouse, which yes, all the, yes, the yeah, members absolutely. of the Clash and the Pistols yes, and yes, the Yes, 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 I was there, yeah. yeah. And, um, yeah, um, it wasn't until much, much later that they were, uh, you know, it, and only in a few cities where they got to, in America, where they got to play really big venues. <laughs> So was it, was it easier to break people in Britain because it, it's smaller and the media's more concentrated? Well, I mean, you, you had one radio station that went from the bottom to the top, the, yeah. the BBC, and um, so that, that made it a lot easier. And you had, to, you had people who really knew what they were doing, John Peel and people like that. Um, oh, no, I... Oh, look, I I love your country. It's it's really it's my second home. You know, I have a I have a flat here. I I used to come here. I I used to spend maybe about four months or more in total in in England every year, back and forth, back and forth. And uh, now maybe three three months, two and a half months a year. You know, if that. You know, I'm look. I'm, I'm 76 years old. Yeah. But the, the Talking Heads was the next major signing for, for Sire. And it's really, I guess so, it, yeah. It's just interesting what, what, you know, they're one of those groups, like the Ramones, when I first heard them and saw them, I couldn't really imagine where they'd come from. They seemed so original, you know. What, what, they were very original. Extraordinary. You know, I had heard about them, and every time I wanted to, you know, to, 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 to I heard they were playing... I was in England. I was. That's when I was really spending a lot of time in England. So um, I, um, you, you know, but by this time, my my wife and Danny were managing the Ramones. So the Ramones knew my every move. I come home, and um, you know, the phone rings fifteen minutes later. Surprise! It's Danny Ramone. He says, Seymour. Uh, we've got some great new songs and we want you to hear them. I said, look, Danny, as you probably know, I've just walked in the door. I said, uh, and it was a Sunday. I remember that it was a Sunday. And I said, look, give me a day to catch up on Monday. Come in any time you want on Tuesday. He said, oh, no, we don't want to come to your office. We booked ourselves in Wednesday. We know you're free. And um, he said, uh, he said, we're gonna, we're, we're gonna play the songs to you. I said, great. No, I was very happy about that. So I, I said, I better check who the opening band is. And I called, and it was a band called The Shirts. I don't know if you heard of them. They didn't make it that well. And they were managed by Hilly Crystal, who I loved. And I, I didn't even want to be seen before the Ramones went went on, uh, because Hilly was pushing me to sign them, you know. And Hilly, I did sign the Dead Boys were Hilly's band, and I loved the Dead Boys, and I signed them. I just didn't, and the shirts were not a bad band. I just didn't, you know, I didn't like them enough. So I'm standing outside uh, this mid-November 
Uh, but it was a beautiful, it was warm night out there on the Bowery. And I was standing there with Lenny Kaye from Patti Smith's band. And all of a sudden, uh, when I thought the shirts were going on, I hear, when my love stands next to your love. You know, I said, and I felt myself, I didn't even realize it at the time, I was being sucked into the, out off the street and into CBGB. I said, I said, this isn't uh, the shirts. So he said, oh no, uh, Hilly managed to get them a paying gig in Brooklyn. He says, this is the talking heads. Well, I'd never seen anything quite like it. You know, they were just a three-piece back then, and I was mesmerized. For the whole gig, I was mesmerized. They had no crew, they had nothing. And uh, here's this frail-looking woman. She, believe me, she's not frail. <laughs> she's and, and she's fabulous. I, I, I love Tina. I love them all, you know. And I try to help the down off stage. She said, you know, and she said, no, we're, we're okay. And then David says to me, we know who you are. He said, uh, he said, and he wrote down an address on a piece of paper. He said, this is our loft. I don't want to talk here. Come to our loft tomorrow. And it was, you know, and I did. And I offered them a deal for more money than I ever offered any band before them, you know. And um, why did you do that? Then? What did you see in them that you thought would be so profitable? Magic. Magic. And um, so. Um, they took the offer, you know, and at the time, they were getting very, they were so ahead of everybody, they were getting into video. And, um, you know, so they were spending a lot of time making videos and things. They also had gone to school together, which is where they met uh, up in Rhode Island, and they were going back and forth and everything. And it took them. Eleven and a half months, which almost killed me. I lost so much sleep over those because there were seven major labels at the time. I said, somebody's going to see and hear what I've seen in this band. And, um, you know, I learned later from Tina that there were other other offers and um, we never discussed what they were, you know, but I'm sure they were probably more sizable. But they decided to go with me. And, um, you know, I mean, but those 11 and a half months, I lost a lot of sleep, I could tell you. Mm-hmm. I love that band. Do you think they achieved the, the potential that they could have achieved? Do you think they could have sold more records than they did? Well, I think they had quite a bit of success. Um, <laughs> I mean, don't you? But I, I think, look... I think they could have achieved more success. I, I think, you know, I, I think the Ramones could have, you know, I think all my bands, you know, and I don't, I don't think I'm to blame for it, you know, I mean, uh, and uh, by this time, Warner Brothers was distributing Sire, and uh, they actually liked the Talking Heads, and, um, you know, um, so, um, no, I... Um, 
I, of course, I think all my bands should have sold more records, but uh, the, and the Talking Heads, I wouldn't say in particular, but um, you know, all of them. What are the things that you look for? What are the things that you listen out for? Is it is almost it simple? Always, almost always, it's the same thing: songs. I'm a song man. Um, I think that in my universe, that's what makes it all go around are the songs. And it's been that way since before when I was a child. You know, I heard a great song, you know, and I would go wild. But um, <clears throat> the, the, the thing is, look, um, a lot of people um, uh, care mostly about the musicianship and I don't underrate that at all but you know these are young bands their their playing is only going to get better you know but they've got to have songs to be, to begin with I mean um, of course when I heard the Smiths not to jump ahead I mean I could recognize uh, you know Danimar how Super, he was. I mean, I think he was on a par with uh, Eric Clapton and the others. You know, I mean, he was that sensational. And um, but it was the songs, you know, and which he co-wrote with the Morrissey. Um, you sound very disappointed in the book about the fact they didn't do better in America. You say it's because they didn't have a manager. Pardon? You said that they didn't have a manager, which was the reason they didn't really do better in America. The Smiths. Um, well, they had managers at different times, but not for very long, as I recall. Um, you know, but I can tell you that, um, you know, Jeff Travis, who really found them and called me and said to me, look, Seymour, I've seen this band and I'm in love with them. And I, I know you. I know you now very well. What was it and about you're going to love them even more than me. What was it about them that, that made you like them so much? Everything. The songs, the, you know, the, the music, um, Morrissey, Johnny, you know. And um, I do remember one thing, and, um, you know, I mean, look, Je Jeff Travis is one of the greatest music people, you know. I was with two of them last night and unfortunately Jeff wasn't there but Daniel Miller and Martin Mills and, and Jeff Travis are, are the three greatest music people I ever worked with uh, not just uh, you know not just in in England but probably you know ever these the, the, these guys were, were great and um but uh, I'm almost forgetting what I, the point I was trying. Oh, yes, yeah, so, so uh, um, let me just go back a, a, a year, all right? Okay. Okay. Um, I'm, I met Daniel Miller, well, more than a year, I met a few years, but I met Daniel Miller at Rough Trade, and uh, he was making these little records where, but it was him, you know, under fictitious names he'd put out these records and I put them out in America you know and um, you, you know he was very grateful for that and I was grateful for the introduction and, and meeting him and uh, I woke up one morning thank God I woke up early 
very early, about six o'clock in the morning, and I had the enemy there, or Melody Maker, or both of them, and there's a little article there that says, Daniel Miller signs real band. And um, it, talk, it talked about Depeche Mode. And um, I, it, I called up, uh, oh, and I saw that they were playing that night, you know. So I said, oh, my God. In Basildon, wasn't it? What? In Basildon, in Essex. In Basildon, That's which you said, you is where have... they were from. Yeah, so I know they were in Basildon. No, I know, but you do. I went up there. But wait a minute, you get in the head. So <laughs> hold your horses there, man. So anyway, so I called up, you know, the Concord, and uh, I said, look, um, I just want to inquire, do you have uh, any seats on your flight out this morning. I said, and what time is it? They said, oh, at 11 o'clock. And I said, and how much is it round trip? He said, $8,000. I said, oh my God. And, you know, and uh, I said, I want a ticket. And I just, you know, I, by that time I had a flat, so I didn't have to pack much clothes, you know, and all that. And I ran out to the airport, and I just made the plane. And uh, Paul McNally, somebody said he might be coming tonight. Are you here, Paul? I guess not. All right. Uh, And Paul McNally met me at the the airport and uh, drove me up to Basildon. And uh, I, I was so blown away because there were a lot of good English bands around at that time. But, um, and they made great records too. But this band was also great live, and they were so young. It was their first, you know, official gig. I couldn't believe it, you know. And like I say, I'm a songman, but this was their first gig, and they were so good. I said, oh, I got it, you know. And I did the deal with Daniel Miller right then and there. Now, a year, a year, a year and a half, whatever it was later, I can't tell you the exact date, but uh, I get a call from Jeff Travis, and he says, oh, Seymour, I've seen this, and he was like, talk really like this, oh, Seymour, I've seen this band, and oh, I can't get over them, you know. I said, um, you know, I hope he's not in the order, but I don't, it's the, tr- it's the truth, you know. And he said, he said, but one thing, I guarantee you, you will love this band more than me. He said, I said, well, that's enough for me, because he's got great ears. I said, "Uh, I'd love to come over and see him. When's their next gig? He said, oh, no, Seymour, it's only in two days' time on the Mall, you know, uh, in in London. I said, two days? I said, I saw Depeche Mode the day they played, (laughs) you know. I said, that's nothing. And I flew over, and I, I saw the Smiths, and, uh, and I signed them, you know, with, with Jeff and, come, you know, together with him. Probably so well, one of your biggest signings, obviously, Madonna. You yes. didn't go and see her. She came to see you, didn't she? Well, uh, she wasn't performing. At that. <laughs> she was just a, a singer. Yes. Well, um, I had... Th- th- there was this guy that did some work for me, uh, and I thought he had a lot of potential. Uh, his name is Mark Kamins, and a uh, really nice, nice young man. He, uh, unfortunately, he's passed away very young. 
But he, um, he says to me, look, he says, you're giving me these little jobs to do. He said, give me one of your bands to do. I said, I don't give my bands to anybody. I said, my bands pick their producers. I said, and uh, unless I know something about, you know, that I, I, I'd rather them not work with the producer or it's out of my budget, you know, I said, my bands pick their producers. I said, and I'm not going to change that. It's the least I can do. He's, I said, but, you know, he was, I said, I'll tell you what I'll do. I said, over the next nine months or so, I want you to find six different acts, up to six different acts, and I'll give you up to $18,000, $3,000 a session to, uh, you know, make demos with them. And, and Madonna was uh, either the third or fourth, I don't remember, band or, or artist that he brought me. And I was in hospital. And um, he, he sent me the record, and I loved it, you know. And uh, I was in the hospital for about nine days, and I had to stay there for a total of 28 days. Um, I had what did thing- you see in the, in the record when you, when, you, when you heard it? What was well, it? It was a, a great voice. What, what, um, how could you tell the potential of that? Of that how could I tell? I'm, I could have been wrong, but I wasn't. <laughs> you weren't. No, you weren't. Mercifully I've been, not. I've been wrong, you know. Yeah. I don't bat a thousand. I don't bat five hundred. You know, maybe three hundred. You know, but um, but it's good enough. No, I just. There I are just, great moments in the book. Maybe, you talk about the bands. Maybe that maybe I was just look. I certainly was having anxiety about being in the hospital. That might have played something into it, too. I don't. You know, I mean, fools give you reasons and wise men never try, you know? And you know who wrote that? Rodgers and Hammerstein. So, uh, you know, they're pretty damn good writers, not me. But um, so anyway, I just had a hunch. That really was what it was. And... uh, I said, look, uh, I'm going to be here, you know, for a total of 28 days, and I don't want to wait. I think you should bring her here. I'd love to meet her. So that was about 3 o'clock in the afternoon or 2 He calls me up at 5 o'clock, and he says to me, uh, I just got off the phone with Madonna. We'll be there at 8 o'clock. Well, I had, I was... You know, in these old rotten pajamas and, the, you know, I probably hadn't showered. I certainly hadn't shaved. Uh, I got it all together. You know, I got people in my office to... to I even got a barber down and, you know, and everything. Uh, I just, you know... And um, when she walked in, something told me, as, as much as I wanted her... She believed in herself so much, you know, so much, you know, and it was not phony. It was really, she is strong. I said, she just wants a chance, a shot. And, uh, you know, and and, uh, 
I, uh, I, I made the deal with her and with, uh, with, with Mark right in the hospital room. So, um, you know. So and, it was, and, it, the, and, the, and what would you say? And the rest is history, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it was that it was, she had a drive in she her. Had, she had, she had a, a drive in everywhere. First of all, she had a great song. Everybody's a great song. But she also, I could just sense this girl would walk through fire. Right. To make it, you but know, that must she, be what you're looking for a lot of the time with 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 any musician who's got. Pardon that, me. That, you must be looking for that with with any musician, really. That that idea of ambition, the idea that they they really. I remember talking to Roger Waters, the Pink Floyd, once, and he said uh, he said musicians who want to be really successful have a we have holes in our in our psyche. We need yeah. to be well, you know on a huge stage. Yeah. And I, I thought it was quite interesting, actually. You, you, there's, there's a line in the book uh, where you say ambition is basically dissatisfaction with who and where you are. You're born with demons that you have to harness before they kill you. You think that that's true? Well, I don't mean it in a bad way. No, 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 not remotely. No, no, it's, it's really interesting. It's just um, really, it's very interesting. Look, you know, uh, first of all, by the time I signed Madonna, or, or most of my artists, um, I had seen so many great artists, you know, that not that I worked with, just that I, uh, you know, some of the things we mentioned, some of the doo-wop songs, some of the country things, come and go. Some of them, careers were finished, some of them were dead, you know, died very, very early. Uh, you know, um, I remember as a kid meeting Buddy Holly. He came up to the Billboard offices, and oh God, I, uh, you know, uh, I was a kid. I mean, he was so talented and such. His career is so short-lived. So um, I'm almost forgetting what, what I'm trying. But um, you, 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 you know, I mean, um, I, I feel. Then and I feel now that uh, I owe it to my artists to to try to do everything I possibly can, you know, to help them. And um, you know, um, I'm I'm sure I failed, you know, sometimes. I'm I'm sure I did, but uh, it wasn't for lack of trying. Is there any act that you wish you'd signed? You talk about missing out on Donovan and missing out on Jethro Tull. Is there anybody you just wish you'd signed as someone who got there first? Well, I certainly liked Donovan, and um, I didn't even have a record company. I couldn't have signed Donovan. But Donovan uh, was uh, a pie artist. There was a great indie label uh, here in, in England. They had the Kinks. They had other, other you know, really good, good artists. And um, and Pie distributed Redbird where I was working, and I happened to hear "Catch the Wind." What a great song! And I said, you, you know, you should pick this record up. And uh, you know, uh, George, George George Goldner, who's the guy I worked with, he's a little mixed on it, but um, I think that um, they they decided, you know. They were going, they were running so, the label was so hot. They had uh, the Dixie Cups, they had the Shangri-Las, they were red hot. I think they figured, you know, why do we need this English 
stuff for. And uh, the, they got picked up by the, a little tiny label in uh, a country label in Nashville called Hickory Records. And, um, you know, yeah, but I loved that record. Right. I, I got to know Donovan. I, I worked with his son. His son had a band and... Uh, you know, they didn't make it, but they were on site. And um, well, it's one that got away. Well, that's one. That's one that got away. Absolutely. I, I, I'm, I'm delighted you, you've been here to talk about about this book this this evening. If only because it's the first time on the on the on the podcast that anybody has been able to say I met Buddy Holly. I met Buddy Holly. Oh, I'm, yes. I'm enormously impressed yeah. that I've oh. met somebody who's met Buddy Holly. Uh, but uh, you've, you've had an extraordinary career and you've, you've been a, a unique vantage point to see all kinds of amazing things and people uh, come along and happen. And they're all recorded in this terrific book, Siren Song. Would you please thank Seymour Stein? This podcast was brought to you by The Word. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.